This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Hey everyone, you're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes and set aside time to explore the reality behind a major cultural event. Today we will be talking about MMA and women and women's participation in mixed martial arts activity. I'm Morgan Lee. I'm an assistant editor at Christianity Today and I'm joined by CT's editor-in-chief, Mark Galley. Hey, Mark. Hey, Morgan. How are you today? Happy New Year. How's Happy it going? Happy New Year. Good. It is a good new year so far. Three, four days old. Nothing to complain about yet. I'm sure we could find something, but I'm glad that you're not the type of person that looks for things. No. All right. So who's our guest today? Our guest today is Alistair Roberts, author of a forthcoming book, Heirs Together, A Theology of the Sexes, published by Crossway, or is about to be published by Crossway. He's a participant on the Mirror Fidelity podcast, and he earned his PhD from Durham University. We're really excited and happy to have him with us. Hi, Alistair. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Where are you calling us from? Durham, UK, in the north of England. It's a beautiful cathedral town, and it dates back to um, the turn of the um, 10th century. So I'm imagining it it's overcast or foggy or cold. What's it like there right now? Overcast, foggy, cold. There you go. <laughs> Pretty much. The stereotype fits. <laughs> yes, it's it's a beautiful place. It's got a castle and a cathedral, and I do volunteer work in the cathedral as well. Okay. Who's the, who's the bishop there right now? Paul Butler. So there was the bishop N.T. Wright was, is that correct? Yes, and yeah. after him, Welby. So it's a little bit of a prolific place to be then. It is. It's quite famous for its scholar bishops, and also it's got a very fine university that many people will know, people like John Barclay and Francis Watson and other big names there. So great to have you with us. I'm going to transition now to give our listeners an overview of why we are talking with someone in near a cathedral in England about <laughs> women's mixed martial arts. The two images don't necessarily go together. Um, so over the weekend, Ronda Rousey, who's a female fighter, arguably responsible for single-handedly raising the profile of female mixed martial arts, returned to the ring. For those people who haven't followed Ronda Rousey, she had quit fighting after a surprise loss to fellow fighter Holly Holmes last year. And once again, the outcome of this fight shocked the world this weekend. In less than a minute, opponent Amanda Nunes defeated Rousey after a referee ended the fight. Literally, you can watch the fight in end in 44 seconds or something like that. While millions of Americans formed their opinions about whether Rousey should have returned to the ring or if her career could recover from this humiliation, some questioned whether Christians should condone or watch women's MMA. So in the lead up to the fight, Alistair Roberts, our guest, wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition asking, how should we think about watching women fight women? So I'm going to attempt to summarize the main points, but we'll link to the full article on our podcast page so you can read it. And we're glad that Roberts can be on the show to kind of nuance 
my summary. So Roberts argues in this piece that the rise of MMA has coincided with the other rise of a feminist script where women today participate more and more in traditionally male activities and sports, as well as in the military. Their participation in these sports and activities, Roberts maintains, quote, commonly seeks to deny the reality of sexual difference, overturn all gender norms, and disproportionately celebrate women who achieve in traditionally male activities or contexts. So for Roberts, this is a negative thing because it discourages men from their inclination to honor and protect women. Further, this shift in culture also denies the type of, quote, creative purpose of genders to each other as espoused in Genesis 2. That's my summary of the article. Again, everyone can go on and read the article for themselves. I want to transition right now to our gut check, which is the moment where we kind of give a concise feeling about how we felt after reading this article. And Mark, can you just give me your initial take? My gut check at the time was very positive in the sense that I think more people need to be uh, talking about some of the things that Alistair brings up in this, especially the physical, the actual physical differences between men and women and how that can play out and how we live out our lives. So I was glad he raised the issue. Uh, I suppose one of the main uh, things that I appreciated was his articulating how we are in a culture now where many women strive to imitate or be or to accomplish things that men accomplish. And I don't hear very many people asking the question, is that really a goal for women? Is that really a goal for men? Is what men aspire to and what men do really something they ought to be doing anyway? So my gut reaction was a little bit different than yours. I have no... Amazing. I I guess there's definitely a part of me that is like, okay, it's a man that's writing about gender. And as a woman, I, I get more defensive off the bat. So while you were able to kind of like have like an intellectual type of response to it, I was kind of like, okay, where's this going? What's going to head? What's it going to yeah, conclude? Right. What's in it for me? Is it going to have something that ultimately makes me feel, I'm not saying this is rational or odd, but like disempowered. And this definitely, this article like provoked a lot of emotion on social media. And so I have read the article for this podcast, but I spent most of the weekend reading people's responses on social media rather than dwelling on the arguments that are in here. And then I was kind of like, oh my gosh, another social media outcry and outburst. And my emotion went there, like grown about that. So I'm actually really glad today that we can be a little bit more intellectual on 10,000 foot level about it, because that's not necessarily what the conversation turned into there. So Alistair, hey, great to have you on the show. Thank you. Let me just ask you an opening question as we get into some of the discussions that you raise. To what extent does the sex of the person fighting come into play or how is it important when it comes to talking about whether MMA is good or bad? First of all, I think it's helpful to clarify a bit of what was being debated within the article. Within the article, I wasn't tackling the issue of MMA as a sport more generally. I wasn't talking about issues like learning how to um, engage in self-defense or anything like that, or even the private activity of a sport where you're learning to use your body to exercise, that sort of thing. That wasn't the purpose of the article. The article was talking about, in particular, the practice of the UFC, including women, as a visual spectacle for a general audience where this pugilistic um, sport is engaged in as entertainment for the public. And I think that was the specific issue I was tackling. Now, when it comes to the issue more generally of that sport, I have a lot of problems with it, as I have with other sorts of sports that involve incredible amount of risk or um, violence enacted upon people in various contexts. So, for instance, if we're talking about a sport such as free climbing, 
where someone's life can easily be lost and many, many lives have been lost. I think as Christians, we should have serious questions about that, despite seeing the fact that there is immense skill, artistry and um, aesthetic beauty within the practice that you can see. Um, so on that front, I think there are common themes that you would have in any criticism of the sport, when whether you're talking about men or about women. On the other hand, I think there are specific concerns that are raised in the case of women. So perhaps it's similar to saying um, if someone was raising a case about the significance of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and then someone says, but all bombing is wrong. On one level, you can say, yes, I agree, we shouldn't be bombing in that sort of fashion. But there's something distinct about these specific cases that deserves attention um, in their own right, not just as part of the more general phenomena. So that's the way I see the difference between talking about men's UFC and women's UFC. Well, that's a helpful distinction. So we'll try to we'll try to focus on the visual spectacle as much as we can, because that is that is your intent. So we'll try to stick with that. So one one thing that you talk about is that particularly women fighting women's changes men's minds. First of all, I'm wondering if you can share with people how you think it changed men's minds and then go into in particular why it's women fighting women that does that. Well, I think women fighting men would have the same effect. But part of the issue, I think, is generally men are taught First of all, they shouldn't hit women. And more generally, that women should not be subjected to violence and should not engage in violence as a normal rule. The idea of women being in the front line in combat, the idea of women being fought against or hit or anything like that is something that a great many men, I think most men, would be something that's concerning to them. On the other hand, I think there's this desire in many men to deal with women in the same way as they deal with their male peers. The idea that you have to hold yourself back, you have to be sensitive or gentle or act in some way different from the way that you act with men is something that many men might chafe at. The idea that you have to treat women with a recognition that, as scripture says, they are the weaker vessel, that's something that men can resist. And that's something I think more generally that we see within our society. There is this appetite for, for instance, a very aggressive pornography where women are presented as those who have this strong um, sexual agency when they um, have a um, very intense sex drive. They can um, engage in very violent and rough activities and they can engage in it just like men. And there's something about that that I do not believe is healthy. And I think there's a, a relationship between that sort of phenomenon and what we see in UFC, where women being beaten up um, is a spectacle for a primarily male audience. What do men see in this? I think one of the things that's interesting is seeing the sort of continuity between the phenomenon of the ringside girls and women in the ring. This is something maybe more obvious within something like WWE, but also within UFC, I think there is that continuity between the two phenomena that women who formerly would just be by the ringside there for visual appearance, when women fight in the ring, there's still that sexual element to it where they are there, they are watched for their appearance. Whatever they may, may be thinking of, I think they're in the ring because of their skill, they're in the ring because of their ability to practice this particular sport. But for the male audience, and it is an overwhelmingly male audience in UFC, there is a very different thing going on, I believe. And I think that is the 
the concern. Towards the, the latter part of the conversation, when you were talking about how these female athletes may perceive themselves, I actually think that that's kind of like where the crux of the conversation gets a little bit hard because who gets to, to own the image, so to speak? Is the image owned by the athletes themselves who are going in there and have trained really hard for what they've done? or or And do they get to kind of pick the terms on which that they're sport is appreciated and how they are as athletes are appreciated um, or is it something where the audience gets to you know foist whatever they want and see what they want to see on there if these women are trying to be taken seriously as athletes like that's their intent perhaps it matters less maybe what you would say than the impact um, which is that they end up being kind of consumed in a crass way and ultimately in a way that further dehumanizes them i think it is important how they see themselves um more generally, I think one of the difficulties I had in the reception of the article was that many people read what I was saying primarily as a prescriptive article. This is the way things ought to be. Whereas my purpose within the article was primarily, well, to give some background to the article, Justin Taylor asked me to write some thoughts on the subject. I dashed off some thoughts in an hour, and that is the article. Um, <laughs> he, ad he added some titles and headings, but that's really what the article is. Um, and my intention within it was to give a sense of a descriptive account of what this phenomenon involves and how, in particular, the celebration of gender atypical and also gender nonconforming women, and um, women who are very much not just extremes of women's tendencies, but very much exceptions to the norm. Um, when they're held forth as the great example of female strength, what does that mean for women more generally? And we see the same phenomena, I think, in, on the screen, where there's a lot of celebration of the strong female character, whether that be someone like Lara Croft or Cara Thrace or Sydney Bristow, whoever it is. All of these characters represent an image of female strength that's very much modelled after an image of male strength. As we celebrate these images, what is the actual consequence of this for women. I was trying to avoid, for the most part of the article, a prescriptive argument saying this is how we should do it or this is how it should be done more generally. At the end, I gestured towards the fact that I believe that there is a more normative argument to be made. And I think we can make one from scripture and also from nature. But my purpose was to make this descriptive argument, to say that this is the general effect. And the more that we celebrate this sort of sport, this sort of image of female strength, the more we're in danger of devaluing the sort of strength that the vast majority of women have, which is a very distinct sort of strength. It's not one that's seen in pugilism or in the sort of violent conflict that you see in the ring in UFC. What we need to do, I think, is have this greater appreciation of the reality of gender differences. Um, this great big fact in the middle of the room, which is not so much as I think both conservatives and um, liberals or complementarians or egalitarians have often seen it. It's been, in many people's mind, it's been a prescriptive thing. Either men must do this, women must do that, or um, both men and women should be equal. In reality, we've got this fact of gender difference, and it's a big fact in many different respects. These differences just are unavoidable, and they make a big difference in all sorts of areas of life. They're things to do with preferences, strengths, um, aptitudes, um, preferred modes of sociality, behaviours, 
all these sorts of things. And somehow we have to deal with that big fact. It's more of an is than an ought. My concern is often we've tried to avoid that fact. We've made prescriptive statements and we've not actually thought about the way that the reality of sexual difference, even before we get to the prescriptive questions, plays out in our lives. And I think this is one of the areas where it can be helpful to attend to that. I'd say that's probably what appealed to me about the article the most was the descriptive nature. Because when it comes to the normative and prescriptive nature of how women and men should act, it's a little more complicated and nuanced and difficult to sometimes step forward. But I do think starting with how these things are perceived and received by a, a larger public is, is a really uh, important question for us to think about. So, for example, I, I have been continually impressed. I'm in my 60s now. Uh, no offense to our present, co present company excluded. How most women uh, completely underestimate the power of the sexual drive in males. And I think just the notion that men find uh, watching women fight not only athletically pleasing, that is to say, like anyone, we would enjoy watching someone, yeah, excel at a sport, there is that sexual dimension always. We're always checking out the women for how they look, what their figure is like, what their hair is like, what their face is like. That's a thing that when you're talking about visual spectacle that we have to just keep in mind when we're talking about uh, sports that are on TV, on the large screen, etc. It's just part of the mix, and it does make a difference in how we perceive what that's communicating to our larger culture. I don't think it's an accident that, yeah, that all these great superheroes on women, uh, super female superheroes in the movies are just have incredible figures. Uh, that's communicating women's empowerment, yeah, but it's also empowering men in another way that most Christians would say is unhealthy. And I think, Mark, that you're hitting at something that I've seen take place into in, in larger I don't know what to call them, like feminist discussions. How, how do we define what women's strength looks like? One thing that you said, Alistair, about this idea that if we start valuing women's strength in, in more violent terms, we potentially risk devaluing the way that we've traditionally valued women's strength. And I guess I would argue that I don't think that women's strength has been traditionally valued. In, in fact, I mean, their physical bodies in many ways have left them subject to abuse or domestic violence or rape or the fact that when you think about like how women are treated in wartime, for example, the fact that we see so few women represented in culture, whether it's as the protagonists of books that are popular or movies that are popular, just kind of going about their lives. I, you can watch many of these movies where it's just a man doing normal things, potentially working at a job, and it, it gets trumped up to some something greater than that. But I, I rarely see that for the stories of women um, who may act in more, in more traditional ways. I'd very much agree with that. I think my aim is not to celebrate some traditional mode of doing things because I don't think there is any ideal traditional mode to return to. I think that the more that we look into the reality of the past, the more that we see a lot of brutality and cruelty and just oppression and suppression of women. I don't think it's an ideal to return to at all. Rather, I see that what we're trying to do in reaction to that is often creating negatives of its own. And so rather than returning to the past, rather than taking this route into the future, I think what we need to do is find some way of valuing women for what they tend to be more generally. Um, when it comes to the big screen, for instance, as you say, women have often been marginalized. We have these male protagonist roles and we have all these stories of beat the bad guys and beat up the bad guys. It's more, it's more than that. It's not only beat up the bad guys, it's, it's annihilate them, exterminate <laughs> yeah. them, destroy them, blow them up. 
And women do not have much place in those stories for the most part. And so when you finally do think we need to include women in this, what you have are these these women who play essentially male roles, who have very feminine figures that are supposed to be attractive to the male viewer. But on the other hand, they're empowered. They can engage, they have do bicycle kicks, whatever it is, roundhouse kicks, and they can beat up large numbers of um, opponents. And yet that's, there's something about that that doesn't ring true. So we have all these great heroes on the big screen, people like more recently Jyn Erso and Ray the year before in the um, Star Wars films. But one thing that's interesting is looking back at character like Princess Leia, who really was a lot more complex than that. She wasn't this <laughs> fighting and kicking action hero. But yet in the moment when she needed to be brave, take the gun and shoot, she could do that. She wasn't someone who was stereotypically this action heroine. But on the other hand, nor was she a shrinking violet or damsel in distress in the stereotypical model. I think it's that sort of complexity that's interesting. And in many ways, we've lost that. One of the things that I find quite exciting is the work of someone like Miyazaki. His movies, which have a lot of, almost all of his movies have central female characters. But yet these characters and the strength of them as protagonists is not based upon their physical strength for the most part, nor is it based upon their fighting or anything like that. Rather, it's their curiosity, their love of books or their um, other traits that they might have, their ability to make friends and to pay attention to the world that they live in. All of these sorts of traits, which is refreshing for many of us because, I mean, I'm not uh, <laughs> fighting, kicking type myself. And the more I look at the big screen, the more I feel there's not much that I can relate to up here. But the more that you explore these range of characters and protagonists, um, the more I think everyone should find something to relate to. And you shouldn't need to have someone who's fighting and kicking to be someone who's relatable, who can be a hero, who can be someone who's admirable. And these traits that we celebrate on the big screen, one of the things I find fascinating about Miyazaki is he says that if you have this male protagonist, it really limits your creativity. You will end up with this very predictable storyline because that's the storyline that that sort of character produces. But if you have a more interesting character and explore what it would be like to have a hero that doesn't fit that mold, what you end up with is fascinating, creative stories that leap off the screen and really capture people's hearts, which is why his name is known around the world and his films. And so I think I would like to see a lot more of that sort of thing, um, not a denigration of women and putting them back into the marginalised position, but a celebration of the distinct strengths that women can bring, encouraging men to appreciate those, um, not as competition to, the, to their own, but as something to look at with wonder and to recognise there's something different here that I can learn from that tempers my understanding of my own strengths because I can see my weaknesses from the perspective of that woman's strengths and vice versa. There's an, a mutual appreciation rather than envy, there's one. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and County, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and Redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. 
Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Yeah, that's been my concern, having thought about this since the 60s and 70s. It has always struck me as backwards that we are, in some ways, putting the emphasis on how women should be more like men, and, and as we've traditionally understood it, when it seems to me, in terms of my own personal character and the men I associate with, I could use a lot more instruction about seeing women heroes and what they do well and instructing my character by trying to be more imitative of them. So, for example, my experience of women in the, wor- the world I traffic in, although I, I know many very strong, outgoing, business-type uh, women who are great leaders, I just know a lot who are just so good at being having the, the what I'd call the traditional female virtues of sacrifice for the sake of family, nurture, caring, compassion, kindness. Uh, these are the strengths that I see in the women that I've associated with in my life that I look at it and I just marvel at how 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 strong they are in these characteristics and how weak I am and how, how self-centered and uncaring I am in respect. I'd like to see men pay more attention to women's strengths and figure out ways in which they can understand those, appreciate those as well. It, it seems, Mark, um, that if we were going to create that type of reality, men would kind of actually have to do a lot of the work, considering that men often have the authority of when we when we talk about film, for instance, a disproportionate number of directors, producers, the people with the real money in Hollywood are men, and and to that extent, they would have to take responsibility for broadening those array or the images that we see in magazines. They're the ones that have to normalize that. And a question maybe to ask Alistair is, the fact is uh, most male directors, producers aren't interested in making those type of movies with those type of heroes because probably they don't make much money. I don't know. Uh, but we continue to make and are making more than ever the superhero movies, whether the superhero is male or female, who end up solving problems by destroying vast amounts of the universe and people in it. <laughs> that seems to get people to come to the box office. I wonder whether it's more a matter of a lack of imagination and creativity because when you see someone like Miyazaki, his films are incredibly popular, but yet they don't fit the mold. Why don't you name some of his movies for the, for okay. the listeners? Um, something like Spirited Away, Howl's Moving Castle, Kiki's Delivery Service, um, Ponyo Under the Sea, Princess Kaguya, and more recently some other films by Studio Ghibli. The big blockbusters that we receive year by year tend to be increasingly derivative. And there is a space for um, more creative and imaginative voices in Hollywood. And I think many of those will come from bringing in fresh perspectives. And I think that will involve women being directors and scriptwriters and that sort of thing. I do wonder if it's more, it's also not that the this issue does not fall just along gender lines, because I think there are are women who are in the movie industry who, who in a sense, support the blockbuster way of going about things for various and sundry reasons. I know in the pornographic industry, there are, there are women directors and producers who produce lots of porn for women and for men. So it isn't, it isn't as if this always falls along gender lines. If we had more women doing X, we would have Y. That's why it goes back to kind of like changing the system overall. Or just changing our, uh, having a different perspective as human beings, whether we're men or women. I think part of the problem is that if you have a, a system that selects for particular traits, even the women that get to the top will have certain sorts of masculinized traits 
preferences and behaviors and what you really need is to break things down in a way that encourages a bit more variety um i just want to take one moment to point out that this podcast quick to listen is made possible by subscribers of christianity today magazine if you subscribe right now you still may be able to get a copy of our january issue our january february issue and it has martin luther on the front you can get a subscription to our publication so ten dollars for ten issues for the entire year you can get it from orderct.com slash quick to listen, orderct.com slash quick to listen. We are hard at work right now on the March issue, which means that we're almost working on the April issue because that's how far we work in advance to really put a lot of good thought and time into giving you what we think is our really best coverage um, for the evangelical world and audience today. So you can get that again at orderct.com slash quick to listen. Alistair, I had one question for you. I think this might be where there was a, a big point of contentiousness. You know, I think many people that are on the show believe that, you know, the Bible suggestion that one's biological sex matters, and, and we, we affirm that the Bible says that. Um, and then, you know, many of our listeners, though not all of them, might also believe that sex can make a difference in who leads a marriage and who leads a church. Your article, in many ways, seems to go a step further. I'm just going to quote something that you wrote in the article where it says, the differences between male and female strengths, tendencies, interests and aptitudes testify to greater and lesser degrees to these differences in creational purpose. I'm wondering, can you tell us where you found biblical or theological support for this claim? Yes. I think from the very beginning in Genesis, we see this, that male and female are not commanded to be male and female so much as created as male and female. And those differences correspond to broader differences, for instance, in God's own activity in the world. So I think what you see in Genesis 1, there are these two dimensions to God's creative work. So you have the first three days, which is forming, naming, taming, structuring, dividing, these sorts of things. And then in the second three days, there's filling, glorifying, perfecting, establishing communion, life, and these sorts of things. And throughout scripture, we see these different patterns more generally. I think you see the work of Christ very much follows the pattern of the first three days, whereas the work of the Spirit is very much associated with the second three-day pattern, where this fills and glorifies, perfects, brings the future, establishes life and communion. When you get to Genesis 2, there's this filling out of mankind's purpose in terms of God's own creative work within the world. You already have an indication of this within Genesis 1, where mankind is instructed to, or blessed and commissioned to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and exercise dominion. But there is a a weighting of those different aspects of calling on a gendered basis. And I think you see in Genesis 2 these things playing out as well. The man is created to till the earth, to tame the earth. And he's also put in the garden to guard the boundaries. He's supposed to um, serve and to keep the garden. He's supposed to maintain the moral boundary associated with the tree. And when the woman is created, she's the one who is the mother of all living, the one who gives life, the one who establishes communion. And I think we see this more generally within society, that the core bonds of any society are established by women. Women are the force that binds societies together in their activity and in who they are as well, what they represent. Whereas men tend to interact more externally, women can form these deep bonds and powerful connections between people. When men, for instance, when a man relates to his 
child he relates to the child as one who has come from his wife the bonds between those two persons are formed through the woman and more generally in scripture i think we see this pattern and it's one of the reasons why i think in scripture we see such a resonance between the work of the spirit and the work of women the spirit is the one who um conceives the um christ in the womb of mary the spirit is the one who groans within us the spirit is the one who brings forth the children of god the one by whom we are regenerated the one who brings life communion the future etc and so i think we see these patterns that are played out within the biblical stories we see it in for instance the story of the exodus which begins in this emphasis upon giving birth um, this emphasis upon struggling um, Israel groaning in pains within the womb of Egypt waiting to be delivered and then at the end you have this before passing through the Red Sea you have this giving of the law of the firstborn the opening of the womb and that passing through is the opening of the womb so that Israel can come forth as a new people and it's no surprise that at the beginning of these great movements in history we see an emphasis upon women struggling in birth whether that is Jochebed the Hebrew midwives Miriam characters like that or pharaoh's daughter or whether it's someone like hannah in first samuel or mary and elizabeth in luke there are these greater patterns within redemptive history that testify to these creational purposes and so i think being more attentive to these i think we can see that scripture gives a lot of emphasis and appreciation to the strengths of women that are distinct and absolutely essential to the purpose of god's salvation and yet often we've been looking for the strong female character so we're looking for the exceptions and they can often be few and far between and what we miss is the strength of the characters who are not the exceptions but exemplify womanliness in a very powerful way and in an admirable way that men and women can both learn from so at this point um what i hear in my head is uh concerns of women uh women who say Okay, that may be true in creational purposes, but I'm a woman who actually doesn't do, I'm not very good at relationships. I don't make connections. I find that whole business kind of uncomfortable, and I just as soon live in my own head. I just as soon live with my life in front of a computer, and I can, I can, I have my gifts or lie in other areas. Does that mean I'm less, I'm less in God's will? I'm less, less of a woman? No, I don't think it does. I think in many ways it can be like, a musical theme that can be played out in a number of different ways and i think the same thing with being a man man isn't necessarily proved in battle a man can also be proved in the act of parenthood or in scholarship or in christian discipleship and the same with women i think there is this variety of different ways to express something that's very unique about your sex um, and something that's beautiful there's in scripture i think there's there is a sense of manliness and womanliness as things that have content and also a certain degree of moral force that we are called to exemplify these virtues and the constellation of virtues for men and women are slightly different in the way that they're positioned relative to each other men and women have the same virtues for the most part but yet they are all inflected in a distinct way by who we are in our distinct identities as men and women. And so I think it's not a denial that women can be strong, but yet their strength has a distinct feminine character, same with a man's strength, a distinct masculine character. And so very much it's a matter of exploring your own particular gifts against the background of that larger framework of virtues. And so you cultivate your gifts in terms of that larger calling to be a man or to be a woman and there are ways of being a man and being a woman that 
are not good, but yet can express some of the tendencies of what it means to be a man and a woman. But yet we're called to bring together these more general virtues into a more distinctively masculine or feminine mode. And I think there's something beautiful to that when we see it. And it can take unusual forms. That's a matter of individual creativity and faithfulness. I just want to wrap things up here by kind of observing that I I do think that one reason why women have visceral reactions to these pieces about gender roles is because they don't necessarily feel like their whole selves are valued for what they are at the church. And so to have some, you know, to have another man articulating what they should be, as opposed to kind of just doing what that work of valuing them would look like can just feel patronizing or condescending or unfair. What is the work that men need to do at a local church level to better honor and admire what women can bring? I've often compared this to a situation where you have a a society that only values fathers, a society where only fathers are named as a parent. And a lot of women may come forward and say, we can be fathers too. But yet what we are looking for is a society that values and recognizes what it means to be a mother and holds that as something that's different from a father, but no less valued. And within the life of the church, I think that's there's a similar thing. Paul speaks about the church as a household, but yet so often the church has been so focused upon the fatherly role of the pastor that it's lost sight of the motherly role that's played by many women within the church. And often we have this sort of prefabricated ecclesiology into which we try and slot women, rather than recognising that in some ways the ministry of women is a core question of ecclesiology, because it's not as if the church exists apart from women. For the church to be the church, it must be a church in which men and women exist as men and women. And within Paul's vision of the church, I think you do have this sense that gender distinction is something that is glorious. There's something ceremonious to it as well. I mean, when we have a great celebration, generally we dress in a way that emphasizes our gender differences. Men dress in tuxedos and women in ball gowns or whatever it is. That sense that this is something glorious about us, something beautiful and something to be brought to a height so that we stand in our full stature as man and woman. And within the church, I think often women have been prevented from doing that, in part because of this narrowing of the church to, I don't know, a church that's very much based upon, in part, upon just the word alone and the word as given by the pastor. And so we all become a sort of religious consumer in some worst case scenarios. And for women, that involves women being identified maybe as a specific class of religious consumer and they need their own particular ministry for them. But we don't tend to ask the question of what is the ministry of women in terms of their agency, not a ministry to women, but the ministry by women and not just the ministry by women, but the ministry of the church itself through women within the church, that they are ministering the church's own ministry, if that makes sense. Again, it will involve a sort of stepping back, making space, and being attentive um, on the part of men. Part of that is stepping back in the role of pure pastoral ministry to recognize the many other ministries within the church and to recognize that the pastor's role is to protect the larger framework of ministries within the church and to empower those And so that involves, particularly in this case, women's ministries. I think also it involves attention, being prepared to listen to what women bring that's distinct from, I mean, men have certain expectations, but we have to step back and listen to what women have to say, what they have in the way of gifts to bring to the table. 
I think that's really good stuff. Um, and it ties into some of the other conversations that Mark and I have been having on the show about women's ministry and even larger discussions at Christianity today. So thank you for helping us go full circle there. We have a good editorial right now. I think it's in our December issue that says the church is not a single parent family. I will also link to that as well, because I think that talks about valuing the mothers in our church. So for all of our listeners, I know we've had a very sprawling conversation. I'm sure you have lots of feelings and thoughts on that. Please, again, share them on our social media channels, CT Podcasts, for Twitter and Facebook.com slash CT Podcasts. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, where we go around and share something that is giving us joy, and also everyone can share where people can follow them online. So, Alistair, will you start us out? Well, over the Christmas period, I've had the joy of cat-sitting for two delightful cats, Ben and Andrew. (laughs) So every day I go there for a few hours and try and get some work done while Andrew jumps up onto my lap and wants to be stroked behind his ears, which (laughs) fortunately for this podcast, I'm I'm not there at the moment. Otherwise, you'd hear their meows and their um, plaintive cries for attention. But that's been a delightful pleasure for the last few days because I don't have pets of my own. Alistair, I just actually tweeted the other day that last year was the year that I really learned the joy of being an animal's human. (laughs) It feels really good. I have a cat that's very affectionate too. And when it comes to cats, you are definitely their human rather than the other way around. (laughs) (laughs) This is true. This is true. It feels so good though. My cat, whenever I come home, greets me and comes into my room and hangs out for 10 minutes, like every single time I come home, which it's a cat dog. So we understand that. Where can people follow you online? I blog at alistairadversaria.com. A-L-A-S-T-A-I-R-A-D-V-E-R-S-A-R-A-R-A-R-A-R-A-R-A-R-A-R-A-R-A-R-A-R-A-R-A-R-A-R-A-R-A-R-A-R-A-R-A-R-
This podcast is a production of Christianity Today. You can find our other podcasts by searching iTunes for Christianity Today. Remember to head to orderct.com slash quick to listen to subscribe for the lowest price you can get Christianity Today. This show is produced by Richard Clark and Cray Allred. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. And please, if you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes. It helps a lot. We will see you all next week. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.